Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of thy faithful and enkindle in them the fire of thy divine love. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. I was on the phone the other day with our warden, Melissa Morganwick. She was telling me about clearing out her dad's house and that she found yet another bunch of religious statues, mostly damaged. I mentioned the box I still have of such things and we were laughing about how most of the old statues have their nose or arm or foot lopped off. Then it occurred to me and I said to Melissa, just as you called, I'm sitting here working on my homily for Sunday and the gospel is all about lopping off body parts and here we are talking about statues with missing parts. Don't you just love when that kind of stuff happens? But my approach to today's homily was to basically ignore the troubling and disturbing lopping off passages in the gospel. However, in the interest of anyone who may perhaps take it too literally, and for those especially disturbed by it, and more accurately and honestly, in the true spirit of not on my watch, I will say one quick thing about it. Graphic, unforgiving, self-abusive, yes, but folks, it's bodily metaphor used to make a purposely disturbing point about getting rid of the people, places, and things in our lives that cause us to live in hell. Bodily metaphor, getting rid of the people, places, and things that cause us to live in hell. Hell being the very absence of God. Okay, we're good? No lapping? Okay, good, my work is done. This morning, I'd like to focus on our Old Testament reading from the book of Esther. Today's reading kind of skips around a bit, and so the context and some of the story is lost. The story of Esther takes place in Persia, and I say that only because I love to say Persia. The Jews are an exiled people, and Esther is an orphaned cousin of Mordecai, who has adopted her into his care. Well, that wasn't much help when Esther is snatched away to be a pagan king's concubine. Esther, by heritage a Jew, but now fully assimilated into a non-religious culture, she's at the mercy of a male-dominated political system. But she has a keen survival instinct and rises in royal favor. She's a, favor a favorite for sure, but Esther is leading a false life the life she's been forced into certainly breaks the rules of Torah, the Jewish law. But she has had to acclimate herself to this in order to survive. Her Jewishness is hidden, is eliminated from her identity. Today's passages find Esther in a dilemma when she discovers Haman's plot to annihilate the Jewish people, her people, herself. Now she needs to gather whatever fragments of her true self are still intact, and she needs to act. So she reveals her Jewish identity as she exposes Haman's plot to the king and begs his intervention to save her people. She shows extraordinary courage in identifying with her doomed people by admitting she's one of them. Although the king did favor her, this admission could have backfired on her for sure. Her plea to the king is, if I have won your favor, O king, and if it pleases the king, let my life be given me and the lives of my people. That is my request. So I can just hear the king replying, what? These are your people? Should have said something. 
Esther, living a false life, forced to live against the tenets of her faith, forced to deny who she was, and yet she dug deep, looked within herself for whatever she had left, and then did what she needed to do. The book of Esther is unique, and it's the only Old Testament book that does not contain any mention of God. Seems kind of strange, right? A Bible book with no mention of God? Yet Esther conveys a message that's consistent with the reoccurring theme in the Bible, the survival and salvation of God's people, and the practice of remembering these things and reenacting them through our celebrations and our rituals. By story's end, she's Queen Esther, daughter of Abihail, as proudly Jewish as she is proudly regal, feared by all under the king. I guess that was considered a good thing, the fearing. Immortalized in scripture and celebrated by Jews for millennia because Esther's story is also the source for the Jewish Feast of Purim, the most joyous festival of the Jewish year. And I think they do that around March in the year. And that's the way it goes with the Jewish faith. Struggle, salvation, remembrance, celebrations, rituals, with Passover, Rosh Hashanah, Purim, thanks to Esther, and many more holidays and holy days. And we do that too, Christmas, Easter, Pentecost, and many more, all remembrance, celebration, and ritual. They shape our year, our seasons, and give rhythm to our spiritual life together. Yes, the story of Esther is a reoccurring theme to be remembered and celebrated. An entire people, the Jews, saved from annihilation. But what I'm seeing is Esther herself, Esther the individual, particularly and personally saved from annihilation and obliteration. And yet, no mention of God. If you read the entire Esther story, you'll find that cousin Mordechai suggests that Esther's rise may have been providential to put her in a position to save her people. And that's the only hint of the divine in this story. Or is it? While the absence of mention of God in this book <clears throat> has created challenges to interpretation, God's presence may be discerned in the loyalty, goodness, and triumph of the weak, the reversals of fortune, where the good triumph over the wicked. Though God is not named, God can still be known because the experience of Esther's people was turned from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into a holiday. The case can be made that God is present and active. Seems whenever the humble are lifted up and the haughty brought down, the case can be made that God is present. And it happens over and over. For example, women such as Hannah and Mary, the mother of Jesus, in the prayers of Hannah in the Hebrew scriptures and Mary in Christian scriptures, the belief is clear that God is in the business of lifting up the oppressed and bringing down the oppressor. As Hannah prepares to leave her young son in the care of Eli the priest, she prays, the Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he also exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts up the needy from the ash heap. As Mary anticipates the birth of Jesus, she prays the words we know as the Magnificat. You knew I'd get that in today, right? Okay. 
He has brought down the powerful from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. There's other examples of such Magnificat-like prayers in the Bible, a recurring and empowering theme. These prayers tell us that if we're looking for evidence of God's presence, we do well to consider those times and places when there are great reversals and dramatic changes of fortune. In a sermon preached by the Reverend Dr. Jeremiah Wright, he referenced another pastor who, in a homily, described going to an art museum and seeing a painting entitled Hope. In fact, you may have heard of this. Uh, he uses the phrase, the audacity of hope, which inspired the title of a book by Barack Obama. He describes a dreary yet inspiring image. Okay, it's beyond dreary, but I think perhaps there's times in our lives, I know I've felt this at times, that we feel utterly defeated, depleted, devastated, for a day or for a season. So try to imagine this, a bit of a meditation, okay? If you will, close your eyes if you're comfortable doing that, and just try to picture this. The painting he described was one of a harpist, and these are his words, and I quote. A woman who at first glance appears to be sitting atop a great mountain. Until you take a closer look, and see that the woman is bruised and bloodied, dressed in tattered rags, the harp reduced to a single frayed string. Your eye is then drawn to the scene below, down to the valley below, where everywhere are the ravages of famine, the drumbeat of war, a world groaning under strife and deprivation. And yet, the harpist is looking upwards, a few faint notes floating upwards to the heavens. She dares to hope. She has the audacity to make music and praise God on the one string she has left." Unquote. So that's what we're to do, to look up and to play that one remaining string of hope in our lives, that one remaining strand of who we really are, who we need to be, who we were meant to be, and then to play that string like our lives depend on it, because that's actually true, our lives do depend on it. When I imagine that painting and apply it somehow to both my personal world and the wider world I inhabit, I wonder where the Magnificat is in it. <clears throat> where will the great reversal come in, the dramatic change? And I'm not sure. But I am sure that it begins with the harpist looking upwards and daring to hope, to have the audacity to make music and praise God on the one string she has left. Hannah and Mary, who knows what was going on deep in their souls that moved them to cry out to God in praise of dramatic change and great reversal when they lifted their eyes and had the audacity to hope. Great reversals and dramatic changes. Kind of reminds me of St. Peter's Church and the evidence of God's presence right here. 
Today's my last official Sunday here at St. Peter's. I've witnessed great reversals and dramatic changes. I've been privileged to have been given the opportunity to be a part of it, and it's been an amazing journey. But I've had to dig deep and take a realistic look at who I am now and what gifts I have left to give at this point of my life. And it makes sense that this is my jumping off point to take all I've learned from my experiences here and see and hope where and how those might best be applied and used. God is present when we examine our hearts and unearth all we're meant to be. And when we take that and bring it forward, I need to have the audacity. The mission and ministry of St. Peter's will continue to flourish and to grow and amazing things will continue to happen. And it all started here with that sense of identity, that claiming who we are, that glancing upward and yes, regardless of our situation and an uncertain future, that audacity to make music and praise God and dare to hope. All that has led to this amazing reversal, right? And I love that Esther made this appearance in my last official Sunday here. I've added her to my heroes. She's now, along with Hannah, Mary, all the Marys really, and many other biblical women and men too, they're all my heroes. They're all on Team Badass. But wait, there's more. The clergy, vestry, and leadership group here at St. Peter's, the staff, all the wonderful folks from All Angels who came here so unselfishly, the whole Epperson family from Heavenly Rest, and all you new congregants from Chelsea to across the country and possibly beyond, and most especially, most especially, the small yet mighty, faithful, loving St. Peter's family I first came to this parish five years ago to serve. Those strong rocks of St. Peter's, the folks who have hung on over the years and would not let go, everyone, you're all forever in my heart and on my team, my team of fellow badass people of God. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Thank you so 